Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, David Johnston's report recommends public hearings instead of a public inquiry. This has left us with even more questions than before. We analyze that report and the decision with Will Stewart, Senior Vice President at Hill Knowlton. Canadians have racked up more household debt than any other country in the G7. Just what are the implications of that? And now the Peel region is splitting up. What regions are next? It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We start with more followed from the decision yesterday from a Special Rapporteur David Johnson. Uh, Mr. Johnson is recommending hearings on the issue of foreign interference in the 2019 and 2021 elections, but he is advising against a public inquiry. Uh, the former Governor General's initial report found serious shortcomings in how intelligence from security agencies was actually communicated to the government. I have found no examples of ministers, the Prime Minister, or their offices knowingly or negligently failing to act on intelligence, advice, or recommendations on the issues I have investigated related to the 2019 and 2021 elections. However, I did find that there are significant and unacceptable gaps in the machinery of government. Uh, it's a, a report that cut an awful lot of people off guard, I think, just given some of this information that we had at hand at that time. I think an awful lot of people thought it was a foregone conclusion that there was going to be a, an inquiry that was going to follow Mr. Johnston's initial report. But it doesn't look like that's going to happen. So let's uh, get into our coverage and some reaction to this. And uh, to that, we're pleased to welcome to the program Will Stewart. Will is a senior vice president, national lead in public affairs and advocacy for Hill Knowlton. Uh, Will, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us on the program today. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Were you surprised by by Mr. Johnston's uh, pronouncement yesterday? It, it's funny, you know, we're seasoned political observers here and mm -hmm. uh, I have a lot of friends in the business as well. And to, almost to a person, everybody said, yeah, it could go 50-50 either way. Um, and I think that's actually the challenge is that none of us could figure out where he was going to land on this because, and again, I think he's so helplessly conflicted in all of this that he never should have taken the job to begin with. And I think that's why we can't read the tea leaves uh, on it. And, and that to me is the real challenge here, that this process from its beginning was set up to fail. No matter what he said at the end of this, no matter what that report said, it would only entrench existing positions. And that's exactly what we've seen today. And that's exactly what we saw yesterday. And that's exactly why why Mr. Johnson should have known better. And frankly, the prime minister should have known better and not asked him even to do this job, given his conflicts and family relationships with the Trudeaus. And and we don't know how those extend. I mean, I've heard Mr. Polyev's characterizations, you know, he's a ski buddy, et cetera. I don't know. <laughs> that, uh, which is you know, the kind of hyperbole, I guess, that opposition leaders tend to, to lean towards from time to time. Uh, but you contrast that with, I think, the reputation and I think the justifiable reputation that Mr. Johnston had as, as a man of integrity and a man who served his country well and and and, and tries to, to be as, as honest and forthcoming as he possibly can on this. Uh, but but it just seemed as if this was this was an impossible task. I don't know who they could have appointed that would have done uh, the job yeah. that people would have said, yeah, I can I can I can live with that. I'm not, that individual. Well, I think they should have maybe started with somebody that didn't serve on the Trudeau Foundation board and somebody that w didn't have dinner with the prime minister and that whose kids didn't ski together. Um, look, I, I don't think I think I agree with you. I think Mr. Johnson has served this this country exceptionally well. And it's a shame that in this instance, 
we've got such major challenges with uh, with his findings but because of the process that was that was set up i mean even in his findings uh, yesterday in subsequent interviews, he says that parliamentarians have to take this seriously. They have to listen to all the information. They have to understand what it is that he saw. But the, that, that to me is just a furtherance of the Liberal Party mantra that they somehow know better than the average uh, Canadian. And we'll let you into our secret little club to see our secret little papers. Politicians are there to represent Canadians. Canadians, by every polling measure on this, have significant concerns and questions about the integrity of their democracy. And that, to me, is the biggest fundamental challenge we have here, is that it's going to be a club of politicians in, in David Johnson's world and in Pierre Trudeau's world that see these papers, not the people who actually matter in this. The people are the ones who deserve answers on this. And I don't disagree with that on a conceptual basis. I want answers on that too. But but how do you how do you balance that out against the fact that you know there there are some I'm sure some intelligence and social or, or state secret areas here that that you know I, I, I harken back I guess when I look at this stuff well and say you know there was great anticipation about the the Mueller report about Russian interference in in that U.S. election. Uh, and very much a great deal of disappointment, as we recall at the time, from all the pages that were redacted. If we had received a report about all of this stuff right now, how much of it would actually be something that could actually be released to the public and how much of it is, is secret information? We really don't know the answer to that, do we? Well, yeah, and I think that that that's another one of the just trust us comments that we've uh, we've been asked to uh, to to swallow as of of yesterday. But you know, I think that is that is the fundamental challenge. But you know what? Sometimes things are hard, and we have to do hard things as a serious country, right? We're a G seven nation. David Johnson, uh, in his own words, says there is significant foreign interference in our system it's very real it's growing it will not go away and it does pose a real danger that's a quote from him from yesterday so you know what i think we owe it to the country we owe it to those who came before us and those who will come after us we owe it to the democracy in this institution our ga partners uh, our sorry our g7 partners our five eyes partners to actually take this seriously and do the hard work we've had inquiries before on on uh, the Mahar affair as a perfect example. Somehow we managed to deal with secret information at that point. But in every instance, we're told that there's nothing to see here with regards to China. And then after a few months, we see there's a lot to see. You'll remember just before the last election that Justin Trudeau decided to take his own government to court to argue that parliament is not supreme. That is the fundamental tenet of a Westminster parliamentary system, just to avoid releasing secret documents about the dismissal of a Chinese scientist from a Winnipeg lab. So I think there's a lot going on here. And with each instance, we're told there's nothing to see, then there's lots to see, but we can't show you. So I think there's a lot going on and Canadians deserve answers. I think that's what really solves. Sunshine cures all illnesses here. There's a couple of things here that I wanted to get your comment on because they, they jumped out at me as I was watching Mr. Johnson yesterday. Uh, the Prime Minister apparently was one of the people that he had a conversation with about this, and I think he said there's at least 47 or 48 people. But anyway, uh, the Prime Minister, according to, to Mr. Johnson, said that he is only briefed on matters that are supported by reliable information. Now, now here's my question, Will, because uh, we've gone through this with other situations on international uh, affairs that have gone on. Uh, define reliable information. I mean, I, I've talked to CSIS members, former CSIS members, I'm sure you have too, uh, and they say, look, it, we, this is intelligence is simply that. It's information gathering and said, we think this is what's going on. They can't confirm it. I mean, you know, they, they gave, uh, as I mentioned in my commentary earlier this morning on CHML, 
these same intelligence services gave the government and Ottawa police authorities all kinds of information that there was a trucker convoy heading there and there were some nefarious people there that had some, some you know, crazy ideas about what they were going to do and be careful. And they, they did nothing until the truck showed up. Uh, you know, do we have to wait until uh, the foreign interference actually decides an election before we say maybe we should do something about this? Um, intelligence well, exactly, is only that. You're exactly right. Yeah, the, the, the beginning of this debate started just the be- the same as the SNC-Lavalin affair, the same as the, the, uh, the Winnipeg Lab affair. It started with a patent denial from uh, from the, the government in, in Ottawa. And I think that's the challenge is Canadians no longer believe the denials because time and time again, there has been uh, more facts to come out, including on this particular issue. And you're right. I mean, intelligence gathering and communicating of intelligence information is more art than science. You're not going to get the bad guys on the phone saying, we're going to do this, come and, come and get us. Um, but it is, you know, it, it's passing strange that he says he's not briefed on anything that is not um, that is not confirmed. You know, the Johnson report also indicated that um, that is important that all of these uh, individuals hear as much intelligence as possible and make up their own minds. You know, we even heard Trudeau say, the prime minister say yesterday, I don't think Canadians would want or expect their leaders to choose ignorance when they can choose to have the facts laid before them. Of course, that's in relation to Mr. Polivare and his his refusal of a briefing. But by the same token, that's that can be laid right at the feet of the prime minister as well if he's only choosing to accept some types of intelligence and not all types of intelligence. He as well is choosing ignorance over facts. Well, and, and I, yeah, I've got some concerns about why Mr. Polyev decided not to even get this information. I mean, he can stand back if he wants, but if the information is going to be forthcoming and it's, it's there for him to make up his own mind. Uh, but there, there could be a political advantage for an opposition party uh, right now to actually not have that information and be able to speculate. And, and, and mm-hmm. some people do that better than others. But here, here's the other thing. I know I'm going to start sounding defensive here, Will, but th- be that as it might. Mr. Johnson seemed to lay a lot of the blame, although he never used word, that word, uh, on those intelligence agencies and on the media for blowing this thing out of proportion. Uh, he seems to gloss over altogether the fact that there was information forthcoming to the Privy Council and to the PMO uh, that somebody in those offices decided wasn't important enough to show the Prime Minister. Who made that value judgment and on what basis did they make that? That doesn't seem to me like a security issue. That seems to me like somebody made a call here and we deserve to know exactly who it was and why they did that. Yeah, and and time and time again, that question has been posed and time and time again, it hasn't been answered. And I agree with you. That is not a confidential. That is not a state secret. That is not a a G7 or a Five Eyes issue. That is a Canadian issue. And and of course, the, the report yesterday also made some pretty heavy criticisms that it's a failure of government institutions that people were not notified or were notified in inappropriately. You know, we've got a situation where the allegation was that a member of parliament has been targeted and his family has been targeted outside of an election period, of course. So David John- that was outside of David Johnson's scope as well. But first we were told it didn't happen. Then we were told no one knew about it. Then we were told everyone did know about it. So, you know, it's hard for Canadians to simply continue to trust government institutions when there's been so many glaring challenges on where and and miss and corrections of fact let's say that i won't use the the, the liar word i'll use many corrections of fact statement how's that <laughs> well that's yeah we we have to skate around some of this stuff here because they don't want to you know <laughs> insinuate something that may or may not be true and we're not suggesting that you know that this is this is not a you know a, a witch hunt here. I hate to use that phrase because it's been so overused down in the states mm-hmm. these days, uh, but it's it's a it's a 
an attempt, I think, to gain some factual information here. And and yeah, I can I understand. I can understand that. Okay, there might have been some stuff in this briefing. I mean, the the way that uh, that uh, Katie Telford here described this, uh, we know, for instance, the American president has a daily briefing. Uh, you know, the president can take or leave the information, but they sit down with O security, somebody from the CIA, somebody from the FBI, somebody from Homeland Security. This, Mr. President, that, Mr. President, we don't think this is a very big deal, but I wanted to bring it to your attention. This is a big deal, et cetera, et cetera. And they do that on a daily basis. They don't do it here in Ontario, in Canada. Mm -hmm. Apparently, some of the staff members are, are given a binder with a bunch of stories on it, newspaper clippings almost, and uh, but they're not allowed to take notes. They're not allowed to, to leave the room with it or anything else. And, and the prime minister's not involved in that. I mean, we've got some huge systemic problems with how information is, is first of all, received and how it's evaluated. I mean, it, it's at what level are people making those decisions? I, I think I think that's something we deserve to know. Yeah, and I, I think you're right on that. I think David John did a good job on that point when he said there is failures of, of, of state institutions here. And, and I don't think that is particular to the Liberal Party, right? This has been ongoing for uh, under a couple of different prime ministers, at least that we that we know yeah. of. And it's probably been the same systems of conveying information. It seems to me that that's what David Johnson is referring to when he says we have a significant systemic issues uh, in how this information is transmitted. And to me, that's that's a huge part of it. Now, there's only so many hours in the day. So whether the prime minister is in that or not, that's the reason why the uh, he or she has staff. Uh, so there should be some level of briefing. There should be, if the President of the United States has time to do it, which I think is a bigger job than the Prime Minister of Canada, then I am sure that uh, we can find the time to to be able to have our institutions work a little bit better for Canadians. Well, and, you know, we have 21st century technology working for us these days, too. I mean, if the prime minister is on the road, which happens uh, on a pretty regular basis, as it does with the prime minister, uh, there are Zoom meetings. There's all sorts of things that we can do here to accommodate that. But it's to bring our leaders, I guess, up to speed on what's going on. Uh, and if there's a problem here, Will, with uh, the, the, any government, and as you say, this predates not just this prime minister, but others, uh, if they don't trust the services, if they don't trust the intelligence, then that's something we need to know too. I mean, where's where's the the, the breakdown here? Uh, if you yeah, don't trust the the stuff you're getting from CSIS or from the RCMP, then you know how can we? That goes back to Johnston's point about reliable data here. Uh, but and again, it's such a gray area right now that uh, that it's it's very hard to even have a discussion or a debate about this. Uh, and and I'm concerned about what's going to happen going forward here. If we're going to hear anything else that's going to give us any more clarity on this. Yeah. And, you know, we and when we do hear new things, we always get the same standard response, which is nothing, nothing to see here. And, you know, I'm concerned about this as well. It's, you know, we see a lot in, in south of the border where we had a, a former president who was very focused on certain media outlets saying they're not uh, telling you the truth. They are they're out to get me. Uh, we had that same president talk about the challenges with the intelligence community and the deep state and the leaks. And this is a criminal activity what they're doing. Uh, they don't know what they're doing in the intelligence community, etc. Well, we're seeing shades of that up here, but we're always quick to point to the blue team that is influenced by right-wing American politics. But there's a lot of similar commentary uh, in the papers today and in the commentary over the last week that really does point their fingers at the media, points their fingers at the other party, points their fingers at the, those intelligence uh, services in Canada as well. And you know, I think what we've seen in the United States is that's a dangerous game to play. It, it erodes confidence in uh, public institutions generally. Yet we're seeing that same playbook here, but we're not calling it for what it is because up here, 
they tend to be they, on the other side of the aisle and they're wearing the red ties up here uh, and it's not the blue team. Well, there's a lot of that going around. And I mean, I yeah. I don't want to get into that. We could be here till noon today talking about that. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the people that call it, you know, the, the quote unquote left wing media. Um, I don't know. Some of my, my favorite, you know, commentators, people like John Iverson and Andrew Coyne and, and so many others are hardly on the left side of the spectrum. I, I think they're, they're trying to mm-hmm. find balance. But what we it's it's supposed to be fact-based, and I don't know uh, that we're getting a whole lot of that right now, and I think that's one of the frustrations. Uh, well, I know it's a busy day for you guys uh, over at Hill Knowlton. Thank you for spending a little bit of time with us this morning. I really appreciate it. It's great to chat with you, Bill, anytime. Always good to, to wake up with uh, Hamilton in London. Thanks so much. Take care. Will Stewart from uh, Hill and Dalton. He is the uh, Senior VP, National Lead of Public Affairs and Advocacy. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, uh, we got a problem. As a matter of fact, there's an argument to be made that we have a crisis, a financial crisis right now. Uh, Canada household debt is the worst debt ratio of any G7 country. What are the contributing factors? Well, uh, Don Kelly will tell us in this report. Mortgage interest costs were up 28.5% in April from a year ago as a result of the Bank of Canada raising interest rates at a breakneck pace over the past year. Inflation for rent was 6.1% year over year. That's despite overall shelter costs rising at a slower pace last month. RBC Economics says shelter was the largest contributor to headline inflation in April, accounting for a third of the growth. Don Kelly, The Canadian Press. So uh, where does this leave us? In a not very enviable position. That's the overview on this. Our next guest can shed some light on that, though. He is Marvin Ryder, professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Uh, Marvin, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Glad to be with you, Bill. It was inevitable, I guess, this was going to happen. I mean, you know, we went through a rough economic patch here, supply chain issues, you know, costs went up. Uh, Then, of course, the Bank of Canada got involved in this. Uh, and I know that some people will sit and rationalize this and say, well, look, this is a global problem. It's not just Canada. And that's right, except other countries seem to be doing a much better job of, of wrestling this to the ground. And we're not. What's going on here? Right. Well, specifically, the statistic that you're referring to came out yesterday, which looked at the total household debt. Now, that would be a combination of your mortgage debt, your car loan, your credit card debt, what have you, to the GDP of the country. And if you look at what Canadians owe, this is not what the government owes, this is not what the federal government, not what the provincial government owes, but just what people owe in this country. We collectively owe 107% of our GDP. So we have been enjoying a lot of leverage in our life. We're very much a group of people who want to consume today and pay tomorrow and don't believe in the idea of saving up for the future. Uh, Now, there's nothing wrong with that. And yes, our ratio is the highest among the the G7 nations. Oddly, Australia is even more levered than we are. But a little bit of leverage is not worrisome if all is looking well. And for the better part of the last year and a half, nice people like me have been cautioning, cautioning (laughs) that there may be a recession on the horizon. And usually when there's a recession, there is a little shakeup in employment. So you may be covering all your debts today, making all your payments today, but what happens if somebody in the household loses a job or somebody is laid off temporarily or what have you, can you continue to carry this? And this is why the alarm has gone out uh, during COVID because people were not consuming. We actually saw debt loads fall, but the minute COVID was over, people went back to their old ways. And in fact, I could argue some people even played catch up 
they, they couldn't buy, so now they bought more. And what we need to be doing is being more prudent. If we have a chance to, to pay down debt, we should do that. If we have a chance to maybe not buy a new car this year and wait for a year, that would also be wise as we go forward. I don't think there's a disaster around the corner, but it's not prudent going into these rough economic waters for us to be carrying this much debt. I, I want to drill down on one of the points you just mentioned, though, Marvin. Uh, let's use the R word here. Uh, and and because yep. we were warned about that, you know, as, as Tiff Macklin was going through his stuff with the, the interest rate uh, uh, increases over the last little while, and we were told that if it, it gets out of hand or it goes too quickly, uh, it could cause a recession. Uh, and I think you mentioned to us in a, your last conversation with us, from a technical standpoint, we're not in a recession right now, but it sure feels like it. <laughs> well, yes. So let's, let's, again, break that down a little bit. What is a recession? A recession occurs when we have two consecutive quarters in which the Canadian economy shrinks. Now, at this point, Bill, we've not even had one quarter where the Canadian economy has shrunk, but, but it has slowed down. And that's what the Bank of Canada is trying trying to do. They are trying to slow the economy, cool the economy, bring the growth down. That's going to bring the inflation down, but not so far with the breaks that we actually hit the shrinkage point. And, and I have to say, for a year and a half nearly, they have been doing a good job. It's a very difficult thing to do to be playing with an economy at this level, to slow it enough to bring inflation down and yet avoid a recession. But so far they have, and there is a growing belief that we may skate through 2023 without a recession, or if it does happen, it'll be very mild. But nonetheless, it is a difficult economic time, and I think people are are spending money as if there's no cloud on the horizon. I'm not saying there's going to be a storm, but I'm not sure it's clear skies either. Well, and, and is this really an end result of, of maybe, you know, rather naive approach that uh, when interest rates were bottoming out and they were low and they were low for a long time, a lot longer than a lot of people thought they were going to be, uh, that a lot of us just assume that that's the new normal. You know, we're never going to see, oh, we're never going to see 18.5% raises in mortgages again, but hey, it's not, probably not even going to go past two or three. Well, it has. And and that's increased people's uh, expenses considerably. I mean, I, I hear this daily now from people, uh, you know, neighbors, friends, everybody else that says, you know what, it's, it's costing me more to do exactly the same stuff before. Groceries, we know, but mortgage rates, everything else seems to have gone up too. And it's it's really hitting us hard. It, it, it is, and, and yet it's not. Now, let me try to explain that question or that comment. Since 1867, since the formation of Canada, if you look at interest rates on things like mortgages, they have averaged about 4 to 5%. We are back to the historical normals of a mortgage coming in in the 4 to 5% range. Okay, maybe we're just slightly above that a little, depending upon how you've negotiated your mortgage, but we're back to historical averages. To your point, when they were cut to get us through COVID, no one should have thought, and everyone was saying, this is not the new normal, this is a temporary measure to get us through, but how quickly we forget. And when we are in a low interest rate environment, we would love to see that continue forever. In fact, it was during the period of low interest rates that you should have brought your debt load down so that whenever they bounce back, you'd be in better shape. Now that, that doesn't mean anything. If you didn't do what you were supposed to do and now the interest rates have gone up, yes, you're struggling a bit. Your costs have gone up a bit. Now, again, amazingly, we've not seen a huge increase in the number of personal uh, 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 defaults, 
bankruptcies, what have you. Um, and it says that Canadians are managing, but we also feel that if there was much more turbulence in the market, we might see that number change. In other words, okay, we've stretched, we've accommodated the interest rates to now, but dear God, don't raise them anymore. And whenever you can get around to lowering them, I'd sure appreciate it. That's kind of the attitude of a lot of Canadians. Uh, and so I'm just telling people, batten down the hatches. We've probably got another year like this, and then we may see interest rates come down in 2024. And that's the message I know that you've been preaching. Uh, Tiff Macklin from the Bank of Canada has been saying this as well. Uh, but it's it's that household debt, but it's also the debt of the household uh, itself. Uh, I think a lot of people jumped into the real estate market during those crazy times, thinking, "You know, I can handle this." You know, it's I'm I'm, I'm paying a relatively low, a ridiculously low interest rate, uh, and we can do this. And they were getting by. But you know, even if that is the case, uh, when you get an increase like this, and and it's time to renew your mortgage this year, for instance. Uh, a lot of people are going to be in for a huge shock, I think, Marvin. A, a huge shock or at least a shock of some sort. Now, Bill, I, I want to remind you that when we had these low interest rates, the Canadian government told the banking industry that you needed to stress test mortgages. What does that mean? Sure, if the interest rate's only running at 1.5%, I can afford to borrow this much money, but don't loan them that amount of money. Pretend that interest rates were 5%, how much could they carry? So all the mortgages issued over the last two or three years have been stress tested and that's one of the reasons why people can carry these higher interest rates because that was all checked out at the time but remember when you when you have a mortgage you typically renew in five-year increments the amortization might be over 20 or 25 years but you renew in five-year increments so if i go back five years that's 2018 nobody was foreseeing this and therefore the stress tests were not in place the same way it is those people who are feeling the biggest sticker shock today. Uh, and again, I'll tell you that the banks, you have to go speak to your bank. The banks don't want your house. They don't want to foreclose. They don't want to kick you out on the street. Therefore, the banks are pulling all kinds of tools out of their little bag of tricks to help you. And the biggest of which is to say, okay, you, you can't carry a bigger payment, then let's extend the term a little bit. Let's change the amortization and work with your bank to get through this. The worst thing you can do is wait until the last possible minute to go to the bank and then surprise them and paint them into a corner. Go to them early, let them bring out their tools. You might be amazed what they can do to help you through this difficult time. Okay, there's the there's there's a ray of hope then. And, and on that note, I think we'll uh, pack it in and we'll talk about this in greater detail later. Marvin, always great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for this today. Glad to be with you, Bill. Marvin Ryder from the Degree School of Business at McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The dissolution of uh, regional governments. Uh, this is something that the Bill Davis government uh, put in place here in Ontario back in 1974, I think it was. And, you know, we had Hamilton, Wentworth, you know, London, Middlesex, and, and, well, Niagara being one of them. Uh, Peel region was one, and that was the first one on the list, apparently. They're, they're going to be dissolved. Uh, but the minister did mention that Niagara and Halton and uh, other areas around us here uh, may be next. Uh, I want to get some reaction to that. Uh, it's not the first time these things have been brought up, but I'm not so sure that the residents in those communities are very happy about this sort of thing, uh, including our next guest, Jim Diodati, who is the mayor of the city of Niagara Falls, who joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Mr. Mayor, good to talk with you again. I uh, hope you're doing well these days. Yeah, doing well. Thanks for having me on your show, Bill. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about this announcement. Not the first time, uh, Mr. Mayor, that, that a, a provincial government has said, you know, maybe we've had enough of this regional government thing, and maybe, you know, these communities should be on their own. Independence, I think, is what uh, the Premier said about this. Uh, 
I, did this announcement catch you off guard, or did you see this coming? No, I, I saw it coming, and uh, and and you know I'm glad that they're making changes. Uh, certainly, <clears throat> there's there's arguments to be made on both sides, but one part I can tell you in my experience here in Niagara, we have an awful lot of politicians. For 450,000 people, we have 126 municipal politicians. And compare that up the highway to, to Hamilton, where there's 150,000 more people. And rather than 126, they do it with 16 politicians. And Toronto does it with 26. So I think it's a matter of not just saving money, but too many cooks in the kitchen. We just are heavily governed, lots of politicians, and won't make me popular with some of my fellow politicians. But I mean, that could mean I'm wishing away my own position. <clears throat> and so be it, because... I really believe we've got way too many politicians in Niagara, and I think it's time that we have a good close look at how we can streamline, make it much more efficient. Uh, and, and that's one of the selling points. I, I mean, I was on the other side of the coin way back in my municipal politics days. It was amalgamation, not not deconstruction. Uh, and we were told the same thing. You know, it, it, we, we had, I can't remember, it was 65 politicians or something, and now we're down, to, as you said, in 16 in, in the city of Hamilton. Uh, but what they don't tell you about until you actually go through it is what this does to, to staffing, uh, because there's going to be some it's, it's I know the, the analogy they usually use here, Jim, is it's like a divorce. Who gets what? How Divide up the assets and who's going to pay for what? Uh, and that could get tricky. It, it, you're absolutely right. And the best way to do a, a, a divorce is a separation agreement that both sides agree to is the best for everyone. And if you're really focused on the future and the residents, just like you know, I think parents would should be focused on the kids, not themselves. You make good decisions. And and one of the big challenges we're having in municipalities right now, and this is right across the country, is we're cannibalizing, uh, chasing staff, where you know the the rage the wages are going up higher. It's it's a real challenge to get staff. And we've got huge housing targets, which we must hit especially with our very, very high immigration numbers, we have to get ahead of the housing situation. It's a crisis right now. It's become critical for whether you're low income or higher, first-time homeowners. It's going to be a serious challenge. My kids, I don't know how they're going to ever afford their own home. And it's becoming a dream that a lot of people are, are wondering how it's ever going to happen. So we need to build more. And right now, we're challenged by getting enough staff, whether it's chief building officials, planning staff, it's a huge challenge right now. So we definitely need to look at ways to streamline. Uh, right now, there's an awful lot of challenges. So I think it's a good time to look at this, to hit the reset, have a better model going forward. I think the model that got us here, it's been fine, but it's not going to be the model that's going to take us forward. There's, like I say, far, far too many politicians, some duplication we need to eliminate, and some costs that can be removed as well if we're more efficient. Are you confident, though, that... Uh there's going to be transition, as you mentioned, uh, that the government's going to be there, that they're going to have your back. They're going to be offering some assistance in some way, shape or form. Well, you know, the conversation has been good, but you're right. Oh, the devil's in the details. And, and, and Bill, you're exactly right. Like we'd want to have everything. And just like a separation agreement, you put everything on paper and you itemize all of your assets and all of your liabilities and you determine who's going to do what, right? Who's going to be taking the kids on what days Everything has to be planned out before you execute. I think that's the key. Good planning and then good execution. So 
I mean, I'd rather have everything in writing and then say, yep, we can agree to that. Yes, we can agree to that. And then we move forward. We all agree. We're all rolling the boat together at the same time. And then we've got something that we can work rather than acrimoniously doing something and then we're fighting and, and then everybody suffers. But the division of assets, again, we're using all these terminologies from the from the legal, you know, separation stuff. Uh, police services, for instance, uh, is there some flexibility, do you think, uh, for, for uh, the some of these things to remain on a, on a regional basis? In other words, a regional police force as opposed to Niagara Falls with one, St. Catharines with one, et cetera, et cetera. There, there could be still some some financial advantages to maintaining that if you're allowed to. Yeah, and 100% I agree. I think something like that can be designed on a per capita basis and that we keep it the way it is right now because it's more, much more efficient having one regional police force. And there's a number of things like that, water, sewer, transit, police, ambulance. A lot of those make more sense being regionalized, and it can be done in, in a number of ways. We can do it with boards, committees, or commissions but based and funded on a, on a per capita basis with the population in the region. I think those kind of things remain the same. It makes the most sense. Uh, and, and again, the, the, as you mentioned, the, the devil's going to be in the details in situations like that. So it, you'd be more comfortable with, I hate to you know put labels on everything, but almost like a hybrid model. Uh, you know, in other words, the community, the city of, for instance, in your case, Niagara Falls, would have autonomy, uh, but you'd be sharing regional services, uh, it, uh, which is kind of what you're doing right now. So a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I think that's a good way to do it because we do have a good relationship at, with our between the municipalities and the regional government. And because it's good, it doesn't mean it functions the most efficient. There are better ways to do it, and we're becoming more efficient. I think we, we need to move the ball forward much quicker. And you're right. I think a hybrid model can work perfectly. I mean, it's not always a cookie cutter that works everywhere. Sometimes best practice is something of a hybrid model and, and a made in Niagara or a made in wherever model, Peel or, or Halton or whatever area. And I think that's why when you get input and then finally someone needs to make a decision. So measure twice, cut once, but someone needs to cut this come here, go away thing. I mean, five years ago, we had the discussions and then nothing came out of it. Yeah. And now we're having the discussions clearly from Peel, something came out of it. And we know that more than likely the other five regions are going to deal with some form of amalgamation. So right now we're waiting to hear when the facilitators are going to be appointed. And I'm sure they're going to meet with all of us, listen to our ideas and hopefully come up with something that serves everybody for best practices. And like you say, I think it could end up being a hybrid model. It's going to be interesting to see how this... Good luck with this, and, and thanks, Jim, for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me, Bill. Take care. That's uh, Niagara Falls Mayor Jim Diodati with his thoughts on that. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.